Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, which is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Nicole Kyle, and I'm on staff here at High Point Church, which is where this podcast comes from. Today on the podcast, we've got a bonus episode for you. We are in the midst of our biblical anthropology series, and in this episode, our senior pastor, Nick, along with Andy Schmidt, sit down to talk with philosopher Michael Matheson Miller. The conversation might seem like it needs some context, and that's because it does. So before you listen to this episode, we recommend that you go to the show description and click on the link to Michael's sermon. In the sermon, he will give you a really good framework of what it means to be made in the image of God. And then come back and listen to this episode. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with head pastor of High Point Church, Nick Gibson, hey. and Michael Matheson-Miller. Michael, you're a guest. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are and what you do? Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so I'm a senior research fellow at the Acton Institute, uh, which is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, there we do the intersection between moral philosophy, theology, and uh, economics, poverty. Um <clears throat> I do a lot of work on what does it mean to be a human person? And I think we're going to talk about that today. I also directed, uh, directed some documentary projects, including a documentary film called Poverty Inc., which you can see on Amazon and uh, iTunes. And then I also have a podcast called The Moral Imagination. Awesome. And since there's no zero-sum game, we can... We're both going to be all right. That's right. For sure. Okay. So I like just to get everything kicked off, the, the point of this podcast is we're trying to figure out why justice is important and what justice is and, and what it means in relation to human beings. And like you just said, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a human? So I think we'll just get started right away with asking what, what does it mean to be a human being, a person? Right, well, obviously, that's the, that is the, the big question, right? I mean, in, in one sense, uh, it's the thing that's the most complex to answer. We, we're, we're close to ourselves. We, we know ourselves. But, you know, Psalm 8 says, who is man, Lord, that you are mindful of him? Right? What does it mean to be a person? And, and, I, and I think I'll say, I think it's super important that we think this through because how we think about the person is going to determine how we understand society, marriage, family, love, friendship, politics, justice, and all the other things. Um, <clears throat> so obviously, you know, if we begin with what is a person, um, there's a theological definition, right? We are created in the image of God. So we are, we are, uh, we are a, embodied, embedded person created in the image of God. So what does that mean? And I think there's a number of characteristics that define us that, 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 um, help explain who we are. So, I mean, I think one other thing maybe to start with is one of the other definitions of a person is that we're rational animals or that we're political animals, right? Political from the Greek word polis, meaning city, that we live in cities. We're, we're the kind of animals with reason that live in cities. So there's all these kind of different ways of doing it. And the one, the, one of the ways I kind of try to break it down is I looked to about seven characteristics, sometimes eight characteristics of, of the person that I think highlights. So we can talk about these in detail, but I would say that the first is that each human being is a subject, a unique, unrepeatable person that has certain characteristics. So we're not an object. 
we're a subject, we're an I, we experience ourselves as an I. So that includes, we have rationality, we're, we have the ability to reason. And that reason doesn't just mean like solving problems, and engineering problems. It's reason is really the overarching capacity of who we are, the ability to love, the ability to worship, right? The ability to create beautiful art, the ability to have interiority, which I think is a mark of a person so that we, we don't only know things, we can ask why something is the case. Right. And that we experience ourselves as a subject. And by the way, we experience others as another I, another subject. So I think reason is, is a, is a key element related to reason is the question of human freedom that, that we are very much profoundly influenced by our environment, by our family, by our culture, by our genetics, by our epigenetics. Uh, but at the core, there is a human freedom. We have the ability to make free decisions in a way that other animals don't. Right. So, and again, we can go into all these things, but so for example, you know, um, beavers will build dams. Okay. We also build things, but beavers don't tend to rent out their dams to others and decorate them. Right. They don't build cathedrals. Right. Um, the other thing is, you know, animals make decisions, right? So if you have a dog, I have a dog. If you, a dog will make a, a choice. I'm going to eat this. I'm not going to eat this. There's a bigger dog there. But animals don't make free decisions the way we make free decisions, right? That an animal lives within the instinctual realm, whereas we can, in fact, choose among contrary opposites and feelings and passions. So we can exercise bravery in the fear, in the face of, 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 of fear. We can, uh, we can fast instead of eating. Okay. We can sacrifice ourselves for others. And so, you know, I, I give an example, part of the interiority is, you know, no, no dog, dogs don't look, look at their paws and think, oh golly, I hope I don't have cancer. And do I have enough life insurance? And like, what's going to happen here to my family? And what meaning do I, purpose have I created in life? Mm -hmm. I mean, if I give you an earthy example, no dog has ever looked at another dog and thought, wow, she's beautiful, but I think we'll wait till marriage. Right. These are not the, but the human beings do those things. And that's mm -hmm. part of our freedom. And the great Viktor Frankl, who wrote a, a beautiful book called um, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, where he talks about his experiences in a concentration camp. He, he, he came to that sense too, that even in the worst situation, there's this core of human freedom that a human being has. And that's, I think, part of our nature. And that's related to our mm -hmm. rationality. Yeah. And, and for, Frankl yeah. believed that was also the core of where we found our meaning for our lives too. Mm -hmm. So that without conceptualizing yourself as free, it was really hard as a human being to like tap into what made your life meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so to lose the sense of the freedom of the human person ultimately downstream creates the problem of human beings that are not well connected to their life's meaning, which creates all kinds of problems. I think so. I mean, like we can just pause on this for a second. I mean, I think this is a problem with materialism right now and determinism mm -hmm. is it's partially true, right? That we're, we're, we're influenced, we're determined. Yeah. Um, but if you, I think, I think the data shows that we're not, I mean, like there's very famous, you know, uh, some of the new atheists who are like trying to convince us about human, uh, about, uh, uh, the determinism and the lack of human freedom, you know, they'll give like 45 minute dinner conversations to try to encourage us that, that we don't have freedom. Mm -hmm. Like, so wait, so I'm supposed to change my mind. And uh, now that you've convinced me to change, I can't, I'm determined to be free. Right. Mm -hmm. So I mean, my joke, I'm determined, meaning maybe I'm, de you might be determined not to be determined, but I'm determined to be free. I mean, the whole thing is like incoherent on its own terms. Mm -hmm. And yet there's, I think something attractive to it in the sense that um, it feels scientific. I think there's another thing that's attractive to it 
in that it's partially real. Like I know that I'm influenced. Things are more complex than I realize. Uh, maybe the third reason it's attractive to be determined because that takes away your moral responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that's another part of freedom that's really important, which we can talk about. Yeah, I think, didn't Aldous Huxley say that straightforwardly? That one of the reasons we embraced this kind of thing is because we wanted to have sex and we wanted to do drugs. I mean, he's- Yeah, it's free. You can do what yeah. you want. And, you have, and so then you can, you know, I was, I was determined. But, but I think the, the other, the, but the danger of course is that it's really knocking on the door of nihilism because- in a sense, if you've given up your freedom, then you have given up your meaning. You've given up purpose in your life. You've given up the ability that you actually have some ability to take responsibility for who you are, to not blame others or the world, and to actually do something meaningful with your life. What's the short definition of nihilism for those who don't know? Like nihilism, yeah. like nothingism. There's, there's nothing there. There's no, there's no meaning whatsoever, mm -hmm. right? It's just kind of an abyss of darkness. Yeah. And because the problem is, Freedom is like an exhilarating thing, right? But it's also a miserable thing mm -hmm. because the facts are, yeah, it's heavy because you heavy. fail. Mm -hmm. Like you, like you, like, I mean, I don't know about you, but like I, I have periods in my life and I'm like complete, like what a waste. I'm, like I'm not yeah, getting anything done. Yeah, most of the people in this room watching are you are under 40. And like Jung uh, always said that like under 40, you're like trying to make something of yourself and struggling with inferiority after 40, you're like, I'm going to die. What, what does my life really mean? And like, you get to like certain ages and, sure. you're, and you're kind of like, maybe I just stink. Like what, yeah. you know, like, it, I'm useless because like, I should have done so much. And that comes from this belief that you are capable of so much more than you were or are. Right. So that's where the, so in a sense, it's like, it's kind of nice. It's kind of clever and scientific to be, to have determinism. But at the end of the day, or not at the end, like when you're 40, 50 or 60 years old and it, you're, you're looking at yourself, I mean, that's just an excuse for the fact that we have not accomplished all that we can. Yeah. Right. And I don't mean people don't struggle. I'm talking about myself. Like mm -hmm. I have not accomplished all that I can. And so there's this risk. There's a danger with freedom. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's in that risk and danger with freedom that man's search for meaning is found. Yeah. And that's and, and then working those things out and understand. So I think the freedom, yeah. the freedom part is, 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 is fundamental. And freedom is also moral responsibility, too, which we can talk about. Right? Yeah. Because part of it, too, is, is that if you don't already stipulate that there is some source of grace out there and then you're looking at your life and you're asking, have I? Am I, have I lived well, but there is nothing gracious by which to make. Okay. The answer, no. And everybody knows that the answer is no on some level. That's it's really always terrifying. No. Yeah. And then also relative to freedom, like humans that are capable of freedom, like, like Michael is saying, are also capable of synchronic and diachronic existence. So like synchronically, like are, we're able to be much wider in our existence than we thought. Like we can know a lot more and we can have memory. Um, with among other people with knowledge, but also like it means that we have the ability to decide to become somebody else in the future. Like there's a future me and what I'm doing now will matter to who that future. So what, like bringing up dogs is a good example. Like I don't think my dog goes, you know, if I do something this today, then I'll be that, that kind of me tomorrow. Right. But this idea that like human freedom, generally speaking, one of the most ways we can affect our human freedom is through virtue, through becoming the sort of person that will reliably do what we wish we could do in the future. Right. Like if something happens to me now, there's a situation that I have to like overcome. I am who I am right now. Whatever I've invested in myself is what I am in my likelihood of succeeding or failing has more to do with what's happened than what is happening. But as a human, I also know that's true. So I can so order my life now so that when I reach that thing in the future, I'll be the kind of person who can meet that. There's no evidence that animals function that way, but human beings can 
and have always functioned that way and understood that because there's a long history of human discipline in every culture. There's some kind of culture of discipline, how we make ourselves the creatures we want to be. That was only humans seem to do that. The weirdest dynamic for me and I like is the dynamic between freedom and discipline, because you would think, I think like an immature view of freedom is just like anarchy. Like you can just do and say and be whoever you want. And then when you, when you look at like Christianity and, and some of these, you know, religions, it's like, no, your freedom is built upon discipline. It's like weird. It's like, now I, I can't do whatever I want. Yeah. So yeah. that's interesting. Well, I think your point also is like, you can, what you've, what's happened to you and what you've done is that's what, that's your capital. That's what mm-hmm. you've got right now. So whatever comes to me, I'm going to be able to, 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 to address it well or poorly because of what I've done and what's happened to me. And, yeah. but I can, Five years from now, be better. I can be stronger. Six months from now, I can be stronger. Mm-hmm. And the facts are, that's a burden. That's an existential weight on us. Because mm-hmm. often we just don't accomplish what we want. I mean, think, think of the millions of self-help books. I mean, the, the kind of the funny thing is like, you know, people are like, well, we're totally determined. But of course, if you go to the bookstore, uh, there's just everything is a self-help book. Right. Because deep down, we know it's not true. Like, we know it's not true. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think you, you brought something up in, in, important that it's interesting, especially now, there's really almost there's two opposite and yet complementary views of human freedom. And it relates to Huxley's point, right? Yeah. We want to be determined so we can do drugs and have sex without mm-hmm. any impunity. Right. Um, uh, we're going to talk about justice and like we were talking about yeah. like the, the ring of Gyges, right? Is you become invisible and you can do whatever you want without any impunity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so, but the just man would still act just, even if he's not going to be punished for yeah. it, even if he's not going to get caught for it. Yeah. Right. But then and simultaneously, we both, we want meaning. We want so meaning. we want no meaning in determinism so we can do what we want. But then turns out that's empty. We actually want meaning, right. but meaning actually requires something like a view of virtue of what, or what a good life and is justice. to be conformed to it. And the problem is, is like, well, you can't actually have it both ways. Right. Well, and and I, that choice is a weight. Right. And I think even like, I, I agree with that. I think, and like before there's, there's that, that we want to be determined because that takes away our moral responsibility and we want to be able to do what we want. And so you have these two opposing and yet mutually enabling contrary oh, yeah, forces. Con- they, they seem contrary, but they're enabling complementary forces, right? right? So the one dominant view of, of freedom is that, well, there is no freedom when we're just determined, right? Mm-hmm. So Sam Harris, you know, he's this example I gave you before, I didn't say his name, but Sam Harris will go around and argue how we're not determined. I mean, sorry, how we're fundamentally determined and we, and we have no free choice. Like, but of course he doesn't live like there's no free choice, mm-hmm. right? And he gives a f- free lecture to free people who come and listen to him and he tries to convince them, right? And he thinks it really matters. Well, if you're determined, there's no such thing as things really mattering because they're just the way they are. Okay. So no one actually lives that way. Um, and, and that's on the determined side. Okay. But the other side is freedom is, and you, you, you alluded to this freedom is merely just doing what you want. It's just a radical exercise of the will and freedom is I can do whatever I want. Okay. And, and so the determinism and the freedom come together because they, they, in a sense, enable you to do what you want and have an excuse for it. But that doesn't lead to happy places. Okay. That leads to despair. Mm-hmm. It leads to sadness. It leads to frustration. It leads to anger. It leads to this quest for meaning. But, and, but let me say, I just want to say I've made the case. And you still end up feeling you st- at some point it leads to guilt, even though you've excused yourself. Of course. That's kind of like an anesthetic where you do all this evil. And then at some point 
that excuse to not feel guilty breaks. And then yeah. the more way of all you've done comes rushing in. Right. And then yep. that becomes really difficult. Well, and, and the other thing is too, like this idea of freedom as a radical exercise of the will is also attractive in the same way that determinism is because you get to do what you want. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's also understandable in the same way determinism is because we are influenced and determined and we can kind of do what we want. Okay. Um, but again, when you push them to their edges, you find out, oh, well, wait, determinism doesn't hold. I don't live like that. Nobody lives like that. And when you push the radical freedom to its end, you also run into a problem. And so like the example I often give is, you know, if I walked out of this room and I started banging my head, you know, on the end of this chair and blood started shooting out, no one would look at me and think, wow, Michael is free. Right? You just wouldn't think that. You'd think I was crazy because an irrational will is not a free will. So, so ultimately just doing what I want doesn't hold at the end. An irrational few, that's, 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 that would be the definition of someone who's, who's deeply mentally disturbed, yeah. right? So determinism, so, so both, neither of these give us the answer. So where does the answer lie? Well, the answer is that we are profoundly influenced. We have the capacity to do things good and evil. And so now we have to decide, are we going to live for the good? Are we going to exercise our freedom, our will, our free will to, for a purpose of love to serve others for nobility, for excellence. And now mm-hmm. we're in this realm of, as I said before, it's kind of the existential rink or ring, I should say, so where you're fighting uh, between despair and deep meaning between complete discouragement and uh, the sense of kind of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And that's a rough place to live, but the reality is that's where we live. You can't escape it. And I think this goes back to like why it matters what a human person is, right? right? Because if, if we can kind of walk through all these things and the philosophical stuff clear it up and we'd like, okay, we're in a, in a, in a ring, right? And we're in a battle and that battle is between despair and meaning between uh, discouragement and an accomplishment and we're free and reasonable but we're also profoundly influenced by our environment and we can do crazy things and be irrational. So we're going to now have to like use our volition and our reason, our intellect mm-hmm. to tighten it up and make something of ourselves. Oh, okay. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And that's where I think your point of thing. And that's the guy, I mean, this is where it's a theology podcast. That's yeah. where grace is good. When you have all these constituents parts together, because so, so, so freedom is interconnected with reason, like one of the other constituent parts. And then there's other parts, like I think provident emotion is one of the ones that you talk about. Mm-hmm. And also our social nature that we're connected to others yep. in relationships of uncalculated giving and gracious receiving. Right. So like all these things are simultaneously true. And one of the things that I think is supposed to be part of the Christian view of the human person is that these are all true together at the same time in an interlocked and interworking way. Yep. So when you start talking about freedom, you can't talk about freedom without relationship to reason. And you can't talk about without relationship to a provident emotion that we have emotions. Happiness is part of it, but if they're also provident, we can govern them. How do we learn to govern them? Well, by using our reason and our freedom to grow in virtue so that we have the right emotions and we can control them in the right ways, but they're there and in relationship to other people because we're social interpersonal beings. So all these things, yep. that's why I think Michael limits it to seven. Cause every time you add something to the list, and then you say, but they're all related to each other. Right. <laughs> the interrelational dynamics are increasing exponentially. And that's so hard to get your head and your heart around. Right. Mm-hmm. Which I think is one of the reasons why um, 
Jesus the Christ is an incarnate person and we have gospels and stories about his life because you can imitate something really complicated until you conceptually understand it. So like you can take a person who's, who's not the sharpest knife in the drawer and they can read the life of Jesus and kind of get the warp and the wolf of being like, this is what Jesus was like. And then you just try to imitate it. And you're going to be like, not too far off. Right. Kind of like when it says in the Psalms that the, the statutes of the Lord, like God's commands can make the simple person wise. Mm-hmm. They can function like they're brilliant if they will believe the things that God has spoken and shown about himself. And so it like you want to keep growing in your view of the human person. But if you're listening to this right now and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is like way too complicated. Well, just keep adding some blocks to it yeah. and just kind of reflect on the interrelational, the, how they're interrelated. And then recognize that God wants you to imitate like his people. Right. And I mean, um, Michael is Roman Catholic. This is one of the reasons why there's a strong history tradition of the saints and, and, and focus on the saints that like, it's not, it's not just veneration in a negative sense of the way Protestants look at it. It's partly having lots of heroes, having lots of different versions of human lives lived well that you can imitate as you begin to conceptually understand more deeply the truths philosophically. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I just, I don't want to put off people who've listened. They're like, Oh my gosh, this is complicated. Right. It is. It is. Yeah. We live in a complicated world and God is infinitely complicated probably, but it's also chewable, you know? Yeah. I think I uh, just, may I say, I think that's, that's, I'd like to your, your articulation. The, the interrelationship is, is important. And part of like, part of what we're doing is I think in a sense, we have our lived experience. So I often say, well, how do we, how do we, if we want to think about the person, how do we start thinking about it? Well, mm-hmm. I said, we have to think philosophically, which means we don't start with a preconceived ideology. The person is simply matter and totally determined or whatever. Right. But in a sense, we, we, we think philosophically, we think scripturally, we look at the life of of Christ. We look at Genesis. We what we look at the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then we think with the tradition. What does the tradition taught us? I mean, like people have been thinking about this for a long time. I mean, this is like this is what philosophy does. Like, what yeah. is what is ethics? Ethics yeah. is the study of how to lead a good life in order to be happy. And human nature is stable, right? Yeah. Like technology might change, but human nature. And as we think about God, in the relationship between God and human nature is a very stable thing to think about. Yeah, human nature stable. Okay. And I say one other thing, sorry, sorry. And the other thing is though, we also have to go back to our own experience because we, how we live, like thinking these through these things through. So in one sense, they are complicated, but in another sense, as you begin to parse them out and think them through, um, I think you can wrestle with them. But I also think it's important that we deal with them because there are so many counterfeit visions of the human person Mm -hmm. that are floating around right now. As Christians, we have to be a lot more philosophically rigorous and theologically rigorous and say, okay, hold on, let's actually think this through. And that's why one of the reasons- If we lived our lives within the womb of a totally pure church guided by shepherds that lived utterly like Christ, you wouldn't need to work this out philosophically. You could just experience the life of the community of God together led by his shepherds and you'd be pretty much fine through imitation, but there's just so much naysaying and confusion. And it's amazing how you can get like a couple little things off. Oh yeah. And they can just kind of bore their way through your whole Christian conception of what it means to be a person. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, how can you get people to like respect the traditions? Because I think that that's what's happening. Well, what happens right now with my generation is that there's, there's this anger or like just, you know, like kind of writing off of, of all traditions. Like for example, like the family, the unit or the, the tradition of, of heterosexual marriage or that kind of thing. Like how can you get younger people, generally speaking, my generation to respect the traditions because that's what feels like if you can't get the traditions correct then you know i i think a big part of it is 
this gets back to imitation that we're imitating creatures. Like they have, you have to see it. You have to see it done beautifully. Absolutely. I mean, when it comes to the written tradition of all the thinkers that have come before, I mean, I think, I think Michael and I both in our work, we try to come up with some of the best things that they've said and advertise them to people, give people little bites, little tastes of it. Like those people walking around the, the mall with like mushu pork and like, Hey man, try this. And you'll want to get the whole plate of it. Um, that's what happened to me. I mean, I, I heard things, I read things and that made me want to read and learn more. But I think in terms of marriage, like I don't know anything better than to spend time with a family where the peace of God exists in their household or around a marriage where the two people are very different in their maleness and femaleness, but love each other, accept each other and function in a profoundly lovingly complimentary way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's right. I think that both of those things are right. I think creating what are sometimes the, uh, sociologist Peter Berger talked about plausibility structures. Mm-hmm. See, and just for the record, even though I'm Catholic, he was Protestant. So oh, yeah. I am quoting Protestants here uh, as well. Uh, Peter Berger talked about plausibility structures and that is like being able to see, Oh, this is possible. Cause a lot of times, mm-hmm. not only possible, it's plausible. I mean, a lot of times like with marriage, for example, and we can go into a, in that a little bit later if you want, but with marriage, there's a lot of divorce. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of sexual abuse. There's a lot of, there's a lot of disorder mm-hmm. uh, in, in the church and outside of the church. Yeah. And so people think, okay, that's just not, that can't work. All right. It's not possible. And then, you know, the pop culture that we live in, is oftentimes promoting promiscuity and, and kind of a hypersexualized view of women and men and, and, um, or androgynous views of women and men. So that's what people are being sold constantly mm-hmm. through music, movie, uh, advertising, etc. Um, and you know, again, this goes back to the beginning, women and men are not objects to be used. We're subjects to be loved and respected. And what we want most in life is to be an intersubjective, loving relationship with the people who are faithful to us that we can trust. That's what we want. Okay. Well, this is goes back to our first question on what does it mean to be a person? Because you're saying that, that human beings are, are subjects, not objects. And this implies that they have some sort of inherent value. And I know people are like, well, their inherent value is that they're made in the image of God. And that's fine but like the bible also teaches that before we are saved in christ we are i mean paul used that we said talked about this in a previous podcast paul uses the word useless like we so how how can we treat people with i guess dignity before they're christians does that make any sense like because it feels like before you're a Christian, you're dead. And then when you're made alive in Christ, obviously you're, you're brought to life. So like, how can you be dead and dignified at the same time? Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think, so maybe I'll, I don't know if I'll answer your question now, but let me, let me respond first by saying, I mean, I, I don't know if that's a good framing of the problem. Like I wouldn't frame it that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, but I, but I do think that there's a question that you're getting to that we have to answer. How would you frame it? So what I guess what I mean by that is, okay, when we think about grace and a life with Christ and right. And we think about the, in a sense, the meritoriousness of our works, right? Right. Where does it, it comes from Christ. It's not like, it's not, there's no, like we're saved the Ephesians two, eight through 10, we're saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, right? Not a result of works that no man may boast. Right. So like, like while we were sinners, Christ came to save us, 
right? Rarely is it good that a man would die for a good man, but Christ died for us when we were sinners. Okay. Now there's this whole question of the grace, the order being brought into the covenant, right? So we're grafted into the covenant, right? God makes a covenant. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob makes covenants. And then we're grafted into that, that covenant. Okay. So that's kind of one question, but then there's another question of the person created in the image of God. Right. Um, and, and, before the question of grace or being saved. Okay. And I think that like, I wouldn't question, I wouldn't look at the question of the human person. Dignity is a dignity based on whether they've accepted Jesus or not. Right. The, each person, whether they know God or not is a child of God made by God. Right. So I think you can make philosophical arguments for it, but let's just stay theologically without talking about grace yet. Well, each person has dignity. So like, I always think of this, there's a beautiful, um, there's a beautiful, um, uh, part of the Jewish Seder meal, um, uh, which is the Passover meal and which kind of goes to this part. So remember like the, the 10 plagues have happened. And in the Seder meal, you take a little bit of wine out of your glass for each of the plagues that has happened. And there is a part in the, in the Seder liturgy where it says that the angels are rejoicing after the Egyptians drown in the sea and God stops them. And he says, why are you rejoicing? My children have drowned, right? The Egyptians have drowned and you take out a little bit of your wine of your cup of joy to remember the plagues and sufferings of the Egyptians, even though they're the Egyptians. Okay. And the sense of like, and if we think about an Egyptian in a, in a biblical metaphorical way, I mean, like, don't go back to Egypt. Do not let Egypt get in you stay away from Egypt, even the Egyptians. Okay. In a sense. So that I think this is a, this is a, there's a a broad sense of the dignity that goes there. Now I think, so, so that's how I would reframe it is let's first just talk about a person and what does a, what, where does the, why does a person require a response of dignity and justice. And I would say this goes back to the sub the, the, each person is a subject with reason, with freedom, right? The free will, um, uh, with that we're, we're that we we have a social nature and each one of us is a, is a subject and we're not objects. And so one of the definitions of sin is an offense against reason. And it's not reasonable or just to treat a person who's like me. And he may look different. He may he be taller, smaller, poor, rich, different color, different religion. He may, but he and I share the same nature. We have, a, we have, we have a shared nature and it's unreasonable. And he's a subject and it's unreasonable for me to treat a subject with hopes, wants, dreams, and independence and interiority as a thing to be used. And I think that's where we first get to the question of dignity. The question of dignity is each human person, the, the offense against dignity is to treat a human being as a thing to be used. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why lust is a sin because lust is an offense against reason. Right. Why? Well, so there is a proper response to sexual values. Right. So if, if I see a beautiful woman and she's beautiful, it's a proper response to sexual values. Okay. Lust happens when I take that subject with hopes, wants, dreams, fears, a past, a future anticipation, the possibility for growth and virtue, all these things. And I turn that subject into an 
object and I isolate the sexual values and I just use or look at that person as merely an object. I have committed a sin because it's an offense against reason because it's not reasonable for me to treat a person like that. And it's offense against their subjective dignity. Right. And so that's, that's the, 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 in a sense, I think early first kind of back to our experience right on the ground Mm -hmm. lived experience of the dignity of of each of us is another subject. And now we can talk about grace and the other things like that, but I think it's right there in, in, in the core. That's how, that's how I would frame it. Yeah. And I think, I think it's clear, like as you start reading the Genesis, the narrative in Genesis after chapter three, where the fall is, you can see that there's a lot of things that are broken about human persons, but it's still the same characteristics that human beings are using to do both good and evil. That when human beings are doing the worst possible things, they're using all of these things to do it. Yep. Persons, inner subjectivity, they know who they are. They're using reason, provident emotion, all that kind of stuff. And when they, whenever they do good, they're turning to God with all of these faculties and loving each other with them. And so the thing that makes us ineradicably deserving of dignity is this thing that doesn't go away in the fall. It gets broken or twisted or bent, as Lewis put it, but it's still all there. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that legitimate our dignity. Does that make sense? For, for folks that um, are listening though, and, and every time Michael says subject and object, you're kind of, it's hard to follow it. When he yeah. says subject, think person, right? And when he says object, think thing. Yeah. Like a person is like a somebody and an object is a something. And you can do things to things you can't do to persons. Does that make sense? And so when we treat people like they're things rather than persons, we are offending this. And it's and when he says against reason, he's not saying you can't come up with a, a way to think about it. Right. Right. He's not. You he, can justify he, it. Yeah. You can come up with a justification that is, quote, rational, but it's not the right or virtuous use of your rationality. If you can't get there by a right and virtuous use of your rationality, then it's against reason. That's what he means by that. Does that make sense? I think one way to put it just simply, if somebody's like, OK, look, I just read the Bible. What does the Bible say? Well, remember when, when God says anybody who kills a human being should be killed in Genesis nine, that's well after the fall. Mm-hmm. So well, well after the fall, people are killing each other and doing all kinds of evil. He said, he institutes this law. That's a primary law before the law of Moses is given where he says, listen, if a person kills another person by unjust means is the assumption, their life is forfeit. You have to kill them back because, and it says there, because in the image of God, man was made. That's one of the, that's the third reference to human beings being made in God's image. And so it, that the image clearly still exists because now after the fall, you, you have this command, right? Yeah. I think, I mean, so it's in the Noahide commandments, yeah. then you see it in the Mosaic law. Mm-hmm. And not only do you see the killing, mm-hmm. you see all this iniquity, right? Um, sexual abuse, um, other kind of violence and then further like taking people's property, right? All, all these things are connected to the dignity of, of the person. And I think, mm-hmm. I think so. And that goes to the, because again, I like that you said that because they are a something and not a, sorry, a someone, someone. and not a something. Yeah. And, and I think that's, and, and I think there's that in that inter that shared nature actually matters. And I mean, if you think of the great, like the great sins of genocide or slavery, what, what are we doing in those, in those sins? What we're doing is we're taking a person and we're turning them into a thing that's different from us. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, like I talk about this sometimes, like right in the beginning, you see this also in the beginning of Genesis, right after the fall, 
Some maybe I think some of the saddest words uh, in the Bible. So the fall has happened. Everything was was great, and then Adam, you know, because first he sees Eve, and he's very excited. He says, "At last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh." Then the fall happens, and the work's going to become hard, etc. And then God says to Eve, "You shall desire your husband, and he will lord it over you." And this, I think, is a a a, a profound reflection on what we could call objectification, right? That is turning a person into an object. Uh, there's a theologian, his last name is Scola. He makes this point that what you, what Adam sees when he sees Eve the first time is identity and difference. Identity, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and difference, woman. And in that identity and difference is a call to communion. Okay, and of course, from that call to communion comes another subject, another someone, Mm-hmm. willed for his or her own sake. Yeah. yeah and think something like grammatically child. an I, right? That's when you say another someone, you mean a child comes a from child, that, right? Yeah, because a child. the two become one flesh. Right. 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 And another someone, another I, that's mm-hmm. why I say like a subject, you're the subject of the sentence. You're the subject of the story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and another a child comes now that child I- exists for his or her own sake. They don't exist for the parents. Right. That's why, by the way, when you say like a child is a gift, that's an ontological reality, mm-hmm. not just a sentimental statement. The child is a gift because the child is given to you as a gift because he or she exists for her own sake. Okay. And then the fall happens. And instead of Adam seeing identity and difference, the difference comes in front of the identity and in a sense covers, blocks the identity. So he focuses more on the fact that she's woman and she becomes an object for his use. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is why, by the way, this is also has to do with possibility structures of marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the, in the part of the tradition, some of the traditions they'll say that marriage is a remedy for concupiscence. Okay. Now, I'm going to be a little earthy, but is that okay? If I'm a little earthy? Yeah, but yeah. 85% of people don't know what concupiscence is. Yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about. Okay. So concupiscence is basically in the tradition, it means... And when St. Paul says, I do what I hate and I don't do what I want, mm-hmm. that's concupiscence. All right. Like, you know, like I'm not going to say bad things about that guy. You know, I know like he's a total jerk, right? You just, ah, I wish I hadn't done it. Right. Okay. Um, you're not going to whatever, commit some sin. Like, and you, and you fail. There's a, there's that tension. There's that, I do what I hate and I don't do what I want. Like, woe is me. That's concupiscence. Mm-hmm. Right. And marriage is a remedy for that. Now, gonna be a little, can I be a little earthy? You can cut it, I guess. But mm-hmm. that does not mean an outlet for horniness. That's not what it means. It means a healing of the objectifying nature so that from Adam and Eve, instead of becoming like, you know, the identity being covered by the difference by woman, it comes back and they become naked without shame, right? Where mm-hmm. there's an intersubjectivity. Right? Okay, does that seem like egalitarian? That's what I'm, I'm trying to think through right now. No, not, I mean, not really, because the difference still exists. What he's saying is, sure. is that the, the no. difference between a man and a woman, can't, if you look at it the wrong way, the difference can obscure the identity of yeah. the other person. Yeah. And so the difference becomes an obstacle in something that you need to crush, as opposed to something or that use. goes along with the identity or use, right? The same thing that happens in like us. Slavery, like exactly. in the United States, right. with race. Right. As you read through Genesis, it like becomes very evident what this means, right? It means that Cain feels like he can kill Abel. It means Lamech thinks he can have two wives instead of one and take revenge on ever whoever he wants, and so on until you get to the flood, where the inclinations of man's heart is evil all the time. 
right? It, like there's this inter demoralizing. It takes away the moral structures of the human heart because we start being pragmatic, like because everything is just a thing to be used. Everything is iron ore to be smelted and turned into a tool of ours, as opposed to everything having its own dignity. And our relationship is this intersubject. Like I'm a, I'm a me, you're a you. And now we have this interpersonal relationship, which Mike, Michael was saying this morning, which is what we all want. What we want is to love and trust. When you say what we all, all gets lost, when you say what we all want. Right. Are you talking about like just human beings in general or, or yeah. Well, or sorry. Yeah. Human beings when we at all know ourselves. Okay. So because I, I keep thinking about like, like, I guess the modern, not the modern, but the right now, I just think about abortion, like the kind of turning a subject into an object. And I think about my generation and how people look at abortion and how it's just like no big deal. Like, like, and it's like having a conversation like this with somebody who's my age, who maybe are in the public school system or whatever, it's, it would seem like a very difficult Converse. I feel like there would just be so much confusion. So how do you like bridge yeah. the gap of like, yeah, it seems weird. I remember one of the, one of the uh, abortion debates I watched was Peter Kreeft was debating somebody else. Peter Kreeft is a Roman Catholic philosopher. And the guy was arguing the, the uh, virtue, virtuo, virtuoso violinist argument oh, yeah. for abortion, which is like, you know, you wake up and you, you're put on life support with this virtual this violin virtual virtuosity guy. Right. And, but it's going to be nine months. You have to lay there and like exchange blood with him through these machines. Right. Are you responsible to keep this other person on life support? If you don't want to, is it something that you should have to consent to? Right. And then the assumption is, is that this is similar to gestating a child in your uterus for nine months. Should you provide increased response to his whole 25 minute argument was, you know, that's a really strange way to talk about motherhood because like, if you can't see, that the inner subjective nature of the relationship between the mother and this human being that she is creating within her own body, that there is an interpersonal relationship, those two that creates obligations, whether you want them or not, right. Then you've already so disordered your reason that you've objectified the other human being. And so of course you can get rid of it. Of course you don't have to give it life support, but like what but also like Carter Steed points out, right? Yeah. You're not going to just kill the violinist. Like, like, well, the violence. Okay. So just take him out and shoot him. Like that's not going to happen either. Right. There's a, there would be a sense of somehow like even that, even that violence who got, you know, secretly attached to you when you were sleeping still has a dignity there. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like you're, you're, but I think that's also another question. One, it's a terrible analogy. Yeah. Because right? <laughs> it's a mother and a child. Yeah. And two, you know, you're not going to kill the, like, okay, we well, yeah, we'll just, let's exterminate the violinist. No one would say that. Right. Yeah. But keep going. I interrupted you. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that I, this idea that like one of the things that our modern society has lost is this idea that scripturally speaking, certain relationships between persons in themselves constitute obligations. Yeah. And in the modern world, um, there is this belief that that is only true either where I want it to be true or isn't true at all. So you can go the Ayn Rand kind of way where it's kind of like only that which I consent to. Everything is rooted in consent and anything I don't consent to, I don't have an obligation to, or that you pick and choose your way through those consents, which would be like sort of modern progressivism, which is like in certain areas, there's debt. You definitely have responsibility, but in these other areas, you definitely don't. And then you say, well, why, why this one and not that one? Why do I have these huge responsibilities to the state, but virtually none relative to sexuality? And the answer is, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to come up with a clear answer as to why those are, why I owe the state my income which is my life, but not my sexuality, which is my life. Right. And, and those, the, the differentiation there is just, it's arbitrary. It's right. because I want a certain end that requires to take your money, 
but sexually I want for myself complete freedom to do what I want. And so I will, I'll let you do that too, as long as it doesn't harm me. But that's not a reasonable way. That's not the right use of reason ordered towards virtue. That is a, it's, it's the two interconnecting things of like no responsibility and I'm determined, but I want to be free. I can do what I want, yeah. but I'm also not responsible. Yeah. yeah. Just, a, I want to say just a couple of things because this is a wide ranging conversation. I just want to add one other thing you said earlier too, being talked about Noah and like the use of everything, you know, in the Noahide commandments, there's respect for animals mm-hmm. because God wants us not just to like, obviously there's the highest respect for subjects, persons, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And this is why child sacrifice, murder, et cetera, are, are evil. Um, but you also, even though you eat animals, you have to respect them. Mm-hmm. You have to treat animals. So you have to treat nature with respect. You have to treat everything with, with respect, with respect. There's, there's, yeah. there's this kind of ordered. And part of that's because we're, we are reasonable, right? So like, for example, it, I just went to animals, but then I want to go into the abortion question. Like, you know, we talked about human beings have freedom. Animals make dis- choices, but they don't make free decisions. Animals also don't have moral responsibility, mm-hmm. right? So if you saw a lion run out and kill a, a, a lamb, it, you know, poor thing, but you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be upset at the lion. I mean, that's what happens. Um, if I was angry, and maybe, angry, maybe the lion's angry, but I'm, if I walked out and just beat to death a lamb with a baseball bat, you'd be horrified mm-hmm. and rightly so. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, the thing is why, because, so I don't think animals have rights because I don't think they have responsibilities and moral culpability, but I think they have moral stature. Mm-hmm. And I think human beings have to treat animals better than we do. Right. So, so the point is, it's not even just like persons and everything else doesn't matter. I mean, in mm-hmm. like the, in, in creation, like there's a, a deep respect. I mean, so in the Genesis narratives and everything, there's this respect for animals. Right. So, but I think, let me, so I just wanted to add that because I think it was, sometimes we can kind of stop at the person and we forget that. But I, as you brought it up, like you said, we treat everything in a certain way. I thought that was a very good point. Um, I, I think to the, so the, the question of like the person, I mean, there's more to the person we can still talk about. I mean, what is it, what are, what are our emotions? What does it mean to be embodied? I mean, you said earlier, there a lot of confusion going on. I mean, I think that one of the deepest parts of confusion is embodiment. Mm -hmm. And this actually connects to the abortion issue. So we tend now to think either we're just bodies, that's materialism, Mm -hmm. or we have kind of like a spiritualist notion where we're, our persons are one thing and our bodies another thing. And so we're kind of driving around in our body like we're driving around in a car. And the Christian anthropological view would say, no, we're embodied persons. We're made out of the dust of the earth and the breath of life, divine, that God breathes into us. Yeah. Okay. And those two, and that being is supposed to be harmonious. Yeah. It's not just dis- disjuncted. Yeah. And so like in, in Aristotelian language, it's like hylomorphism, right? Like we're like a matter form combo. Okay. And so uh, it's like a combo platter. Okay. But different. All right. And so this idea that we're embodied really matters. And how we think about our embodiment really affects how we think about sexuality, mm-hmm. how we think about abortion, how we think about euthanasia, okay, how we think about gender. If our body is just something that's just kind of an accident, right? Um, or our body is all we are. Well, if our body is all we are, then we're basically raw material. And if we're just raw material, then we can be used by the state or uh, the social engineer to accomplish some great goal that he has. 
Okay. If our body is, if we're, if we're just really our person, they're like, well, I didn't hit you. My body hit you. Right. Well, we're not killing a person. We're just killing a fetus. Like we're not killing a person. Grandpa's not there anymore. We're just killing his body. Like, no, that's an error because we're embodied persons. Right. And so, so th this goes to the question. So how would you th begin to think about, about abortion? I mean, it all, you know, when you're talking, say so you say, oh, you're talking to someone of your, your, your generation. Yeah. Um, you know, I, in that way, I don't know if your generation, I'm older than you are, is different from mine. In some ways, your generation is more pro-life than, than my generation. I think if you look at numbers, there's an increase in pro-life and the, people are beginning to uh, will be aware. In what? Like, in oh, and like, in, in people who think abortion is, is, is morally uh, evil or problematic. Yeah. Because I mean, part of it has to do with ultrasounds and for, you know, a lot of advocacy work, getting the, the news out. I mean, a lot of people in the past, that okay, that no. So the pill would be contraception unless you're talking about abortifacient pills. I don't, I don't know. I okay. So there's two things. So there's a pill. Okay. There's what was called generally called the pill and that's a contraceptive. Yeah. Okay. And then there's, there are, there are abortifacient pills. Yeah. Okay. Which, which kill. Yeah. Um, and so, I'm not saying they're not being used. I'm saying like generationally, my point was just in some ways, I think there's actually a little bit of a, more people are yeah. pro-life than they I, were. It seems but, like in his generation, you're getting a, a more of a sensitivity towards the dismemberment of children in like, like DNC kind of abortions, like a 20 weeks kind of deal. Mm -hmm. But it seems like there's becoming more passivity towards like the morning after pill. Yeah. Okay, maybe that's the case. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure on the data, so yeah, me I can't speak well, to it. But that's what I—that's what I seem to hear from younger people. Is like they, when you say like, do you think a 17-week fetus should be dismembered in the womb if the mother doesn't want it anymore? They're like, that sounds horrifying. If but but if you're like, you just had sex, you think you might have been ovulating. Is it okay to go to the pharmacy and take this pill to make sure you're not going to get quote get pregnant? They're like, oh yeah, that's fine. That's just yeah. that's just Even contraception. That is actually in their mind, right, contraception. In their mind, it's contraception. But why is policy being passed to say that like, you know, whatever third trimester babies can be aborted too? Like that. This is the first time that that's been happening. I mean, in this time period, right? That that hasn't, that no, has no. America has had some of the least restrictive abortion laws in the entire world for a long time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, and by the way, that's not your generation. That's, uh, mostly baby boomers who are doing that for, I mean, you know, who are passing the laws, but, but let's get back to the, mm -hmm. the big, the bigger question. Okay. How do you talk about it? And I think this is, this is a good question. I mean, part of it is how do you talk about it? Well, it depends who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. You tend to be like, what, what, like, how are they talking to you about it? You know, so you might be talking to somebody who actually had an abortion. They may be in a sense without letting you immediately know, letting you know, they're crying out. They want to hear what you think. You're going to talk to someone in that way, very different than you're going to talk to somebody who's maybe standing up, making a, like a, you know, a, a debate argument or whatever. Right. So, so part of it is like, you have to be attentive to the needs of the person that you're talking to without ever compromising the truth. You have to tell the truth. Okay. You have to do it with charity, but always tell the truth. Mm -hmm. um, but so anyway, so I think, so, so why does this kind of human thing matter? I think there's a couple things. Number one, like this talk about the person and embodiment really matters and how, what kind of moral decision are we making? So if, again, if we're just matter, if we're just bodies, well, what, what does it matter? Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and then I'll, I'll keep going that in a second too. Mm -hmm. If it's not the, if it's not the person, right, there's no consciousness 
right? They're just a baby. They don't know anything. They're just like a little, like, you know, a fetus at, at 10 weeks. They don't, they can't live on their own. They don't have any independence. Okay. So now we begin to start to think, okay, what does it mean to be a person? When does personhood begin? Is personhood separated from conception? Yeah. Like you do you, like at eight weeks, do you become like, what makes you a person except for the fact that you're a human being with the certain, you know, human genome? Yeah. Like, okay. If it's something else, what is it? Okay. And then I think what you can tend to do is walk through it. Okay. Say, well, why would you think that it's permissible to kill an unborn baby? Well, they're a fetus. Okay. Yes. Okay. They're a fetus, but why would you, why, they're still an unborn baby, an unborn fetus, but a human being, an un, you know, in the womb. Why do you think it's permissible to kill a human being in utero? And then what tends to happen is you tend to get different kinds of arguments, right? Well, the violinist argument, like I, I'm, you know, this, my body. Okay. Well, it's actually, you're not killing your body. You're killing another body. And so you start to have that discussion there and you walk down that we want to go through all the details. And then the other question, they'll often come to the sense that it's not really a person yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you say, okay, well, what makes a person now? Why we're talking about rationality. Mm -hmm. well, they, well, they don't have rationality. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do they have the potential for rationality? They don't have will. Well, they have, a, do they have the potential for will? Like what? Right. Yeah. And then, okay. They don't have consciousness. This will come up. Well, you're not fully conscious when you're sleeping. You're not fully mm -hmm. conscious when you're in a coma. Should we kill people who yeah. are in a coma? Or if you're five days old, you're not a whole lot more conscious yeah. than when you were immediately born. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, or three, but yeah, yeah. three. Even a very three famous early. ethicist, Peter Singer, argued in one of his ethics yeah. writings that like, you probably should be able to end the life of an infant after they're born for a certain period of well, time. Several months, didn't he say? Yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah. It's because, maybe because you don't, you don't like, so then you start to like walk, walk through this. Okay. What's the, what's the mark of personhood. Okay. Well, consciousness. So then again, you kind of walk through, like I gave that example, you're not conscious at this, but you know, the much difference. And I think what I tend to try to do is help people see that their, their, their argument for say abortion, because that's the example you gave is arbitrary. The person is arbitrary. So for example, let's say there's someone, you know, many people have made arguments that a certain say races or ethnicities, right? They lack personhood. Okay. So you could say like, you know, the Nazis said, well, Jews aren't there, you know, they're not, they don't, they don't deserve full status of personhood. Right. In the American South, they were in the United States, not just American South, the United States, the slaves were three fifths of a person. Okay. Uh, in the paterfamilias the, the, of, of, of ancient Rome, the father could kill the children if he so desired, right? He had life over death. Right. Um, you know, what there are, you know, if you look at, again, to the Nazi regime, the gulags, uh, you see, for example, um, the eradication of people with, with disabilities. I think it was Iceland, Iceland or one of the Scandinavian countries recently just said, yeah, Iceland, we got rid of down syndrome. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I'm bald. Okay. You can get rid of bald people by killing, killing all, all of them. All the bald people, right. but that's not getting rid of down syndrome or bald people. That's killing, bald killing people. everybody who has them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so uh, if you look at the, the German national socialists, the Nazis, um, they killed people with down syndrome. Um, they killed homosexuals, people with homosexual tendencies, I think is more accurate. Uh, uh, than that. So, well, you could say, oh, well, you know, you can make a Darwinian argument that people with homosexual tendencies don't tend to reproduce and therefore they lack fullness of personhood. Therefore we should kill them. Like, no, 
Absolutely not. Okay. Oh, people of this skin color, you know, people of this IQ, people of this, like at some point it's arbitrary. And I think mm -hmm. generally what I, when I, and this is actually very practical, when I'm having a discussion like this with people, um, one, I always try to stay very calm and just, you know, listen to them because again, paying attention to like hurt they might have. But I think the other thing is just walk them down to see, look, I might not change your mind on abortion right now, but be aware that you have no ground whatsoever to stand on. To tell the Nazi, the racist, right, the homophobe, whatever you want, like the home, the person wants to kill homosexuals, the 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 um, uh, eugenicist, why they're wrong, because they just have their own arbitrary definition of the person, and if that's the case, then all we're dealing with is whoever has power decides. And now we're not dealing with justice. We're dealing with a dictatorship because the dictates of those in power, whether it's the majority, whether it's the United States Congress or whether it's Stalin or Hitler, the dictator is dictating that some people don't have a right to life based on power. And what I tend to find is people will come across like, okay, they may not, they don't like it. They're uncomfortable. Okay. But I think that's the opening of the question because other, either you're using an arbitrary definition of personhood, right? And then you're just in power and whoever has voice, mm -hmm. right? Or we're going to have a broader definition of personhood and that's going to include all human beings. And then everybody has a right to life. Yeah. I, okay. So I, I want to try to move the ball down the field a little bit here, see if we can get a first down. So we talked about some of the things that are constituent to what uh, make a human person, right? An embodied What's so you poured you put embodied embedded, embedded. embedded yeah. So embedded. embodied that is you have a body and you're embodied, right? Embodied. Embedded meaning you're you are with others. Yeah. And that, so that's fundamental to human existence. Yeah. Right. And then you have these these internal characteristics which include, but are not limited to reason, provident emotion, freedom. Right. Well, maybe we should talk about what you call provident emotion. I, I call reasonable emotions. Okay, great. Uh, but I mean provident I, I like that as well. So reasonable emotions is just meaning part of our nature. One of the things we have is that we have the ability to have deep spiritual emotions. And sometimes what happens is the way we, we articulate things is we have like passions and reason. And so we reduce reason to like very empirical things. You're like, oh, how much is this? And what is the measurement and everything? Mm -hmm. But I think two things. One, that's a limited view of reason, right? And it's not a coherent view of reason, which I could talk about if you want, but it's, but it's a limited right. view of reason. A reason actually applies to love and compassion and mercy and charity. And that we have these, these, what C.S. Lewis calls reasonable emotions, others call spiritual emotions. Okay. There's a German philosopher I like, he calls it intelligible spiritual affectivity, which is one word. Okay. Cause Germans like big, long words, but that's actually a helpful one, even though I joke about it, mm -hmm. it's intelligible, it's spiritual and it's effective. It's affective. I mean, it's an emotion. Yeah. It comes out of you. Yeah. And it's a response to the value of others. So the beauty of a landscape, the, an act of mercy and forgiveness. I mean, you know, think about what even humans like, you know, there's like a video thing called people are awesome. And you watch like the awesome things, or you watch like, you know, an act where say a soldier helps a little child or someone helps an older person or a weak person. And you're moved by it. That's, intelligible spiritual affectivity. That's a reasonable emotion. You're responding to the beauty or mercy or dignity uh, of something. And that's 
part of fundamentally part of who we are. And that's part of love and worship because yeah. love is a response to the value of the other person that yeah. wills the other person's good. So that capacity for spiritual right. emotions is I think very, very rich part of who we are as human beings. Right. And it includes the capacity to worship that yep. is to love God and the capacity to love others without that one about emotion you do not understand the human person. And there's some ways we sometimes conceptualize ourselves where we don't really give that what it requires. We mechanize ourselves. And, and yeah. that's an, and that's a non-mechanist. Yeah. Theory. And then we have the capacity for virtue. And I think one of the things you say too, Michael is that we have an eternal destiny. We're spiritual beings with an eternal destiny. And like for some of us, some people will be like, Hey, when are you going to talk about us living forever? Or like us having spiritual life. And that is one of them that we, that we're ordered to virtue and that we have, um, we're, we are prepared for an eternal destiny that, that those two things are that we're moral creatures, that we, we have the capacity for virtue, that that's what the good life is. That's what we're meant to live according to. We might call that holiness, right? Uh, to live well and die holy, I think is the language that Michael uses a good bit. And then also order to an eternal destiny. You take all those things together and you have a being that if reason is rightly ordered to that being, you have to treat them with some inherent value that we refer to as dignity. Right. And then you say, okay, that, that being that has this dignity, what do the rest of us owe that person? Or how do we have this like embedded relationship where we're all stuck with each other, right? How do we do it rightly ordered to reason with the right kind of emotion, recognizing what the other person is, them recognizing who we are. So we order our lives together. That then is justice giving others what they are due. Well, yeah. I mean, like while relating it to, to justice, I mean, you made the point that like dictatorship in a way is like just, being arbitrary about what a human being is, right? So, like, if you're well, those with power, determine those with power, those without yes. power don't yes. have rights. Yeah, the dictator. Yeah, tons of political philosophers have said over the years that everything related to the polis and therefore justice starts with a view of human nature. Everything that human beings do together starts with a view of human nature. And so people can say all this stuff like, well, I don't get into this fancy talk about human nature and what a person is and blah, blah, blah. No, everybody is doing it. Every, every time you do anything to human beings or with human beings or around human beings, you, if you break that down enough, you have a bunch of assumptions about what human beings are and therefore what they owe each other. So what do you do? What does a Christian do then to fight, fight something like fight back against the dictators of the world? Like, because, because when Paul and, and Jesus were asked whether they should like pay taxes to, to the government who was you know, the Roman empire who was, you know, killing people and imperializing and they, they, they said, pay the taxes. And so it's like, it kind of seems like, okay, so then you want me to be involved in the dictatorship that's happening right here where they're yeah. the, the, you know, so I think you're jumping to the next episode. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think yeah, right now yeah. we, we spent a lot of time can, on the human person. Yeah. So can we, maybe we can focus a little bit on justice. So given that a human, this is what a human person is. Um, how do we determine, how do we figure out as human beings what we owe each other? The human person though, first that, that we, we, we know, but we haven't said, Okay, as long as it's fast. It's super fast. It's, you know, it's epic, actually. It's yeah. fast and it's epic. So we're free. We're reasonable. We have spiritual emotions. We have a social nature. Uh -huh. We're embedded. We, we live in a tradition. We're born into a family. Okay. Uh -huh. um, uh, we have, all, like I said, we said reasonable emotions. We have an eternal destiny. Uh -huh. And we get our bodies back. Mm -hmm. This is really, really important. I mean, it's a very, like, you know, what do we say in the, in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed? We believe in the resurrection of the dead mm -hmm. because we get our bodies back. Our bodies are not an accident. And this is mm -hmm. something that's very powerful that, 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 and I think is it in a sense attractive uh, to young people and to old people, we get our bodies back, mm -hmm. that our bodies are not something we need to escape from. 
They're not, they're not yeah. holding us back. They're not the thing. Oh, you know, cause Paul was say of this body of mine, but he doesn't mean that our bodies aren't good. He means like the, the struggling of the passions and the disorder, the yeah. concupiscence, the doing what we hate, doing what we want, et cetera. But our bodies are good. And that's very, very important. There's three kinds of persons. There's divine persons. There's mm -hmm. three of them, the father, son, and the Holy spirit. Mm -hmm. There's angelic persons. And then there's embodied persons, human persons, that's us. Mm -hmm. There's three kinds of persons and that body is, is not an accident. I just think it's, mm -hmm. you know, as we kind of wrap up that, that yeah. question, it's so important to do that, to, to remember that, uh, because that I think is also important because that, then that, that in a sense from the back, from the, from the end sheds light on how we're supposed to live now. Like right? our body, yeah. a temple of the Holy spirit and we were bought at a price. I think one of the reasons why coming back to that, like hitting the embodiedness a bunch of times is because I think one of the things that you've tried to be arguing publicly and Karsh needs like this, a lot of people doing work in human anthropology theologically right now, we're trying to make this idea that there's something about materialism where you believe all there is, is the body. And yet you still find a way to deny the body. Yes. And it's this weird contradiction yeah. where, where like you, you basically say everything's material. All there is, is this body. And then you give yourself to expressive individualism, which means the interior subjective in intrapersonal life, the, the little the psychology life I, inside of me, that's the me. And if it goes against this physical body, so much the worse for the physical body. Right. And you're kind of like, wait, what? And I think that Christians really need to, to hit that. Oh, yeah. Like they, they need to like be like, do you see what's happening here? You're actually denying the body whilst saying all there is, is the body. And so you're really believing in this sort of like sort of strange spirituality that really the psychology is all there is yeah. that all there is the material that material creates this subjective psychological reality. And you believe that, that is the most ultimate thing in the universe. Right. And so that you're that's certainly not gender. obvious that that's true. No, I mean, this is, this is actually goes to the gender, the gender problem as well. Before which is we used to go, like, can we, can we like simplify that? What you just said, because I know that I halfway understood that and everybody else is probably going to halfway understand that you guys were all on yeah, the same so, page. So like, I mean, if you think about this, like, so Christians for a long time have believed in some form of what people would call dualism, but it's the idea that like, there's, there's a immaterial reality that is us ourselves. Right. And then we have a physical body and these things are a single thing, right? A, like a, an interweaving composite. Right. And as, as like secularism has progressed, it has pushed, pushed out this idea of this, like the person, right. And, and more and more, it's like, there's just this physical body. You're this animal. Right. And yet increasingly, we also believe that the way we think about ourselves inside of ourselves is the really real thing. Yeah. The real the, me, right, right, is the real me is yeah. this kind of secret spiritual place. And the pinnacle of this, I think, and I know this gets really complicated because people feel really upset about this. But the pinnacle of this is um, is transgender <laughs> questions, like that, like my I am, I am the I am not this physical body. And think about the, I mean, think about how terrifying that is. You're, if you're a transgender person, you're trying to consider how God relates to you, and then you're told that Christianity believes in the resurrection of the body which is probably the embodiment of your gender is included in that. And no matter what you would do to change it to the gender, this body, the gender you wanted, God will raise it from the dead, the original way he, like he made it, except without the difficulty that is the body stays and the interiority that you believe is the really real thing will go away like that. 
Imagine how somebody would feel about that and how they would respond to it and how difficult it is a thing to consider. If what you believe is that your interiority, that in that inside thing happening that you call the me is that is the only really, really, really real thing. And everything else has to move around to fit that so that you can express your individualism. That's what expressive individualism is. And that view people, people don't even, if you're like, you're under, let's say 35 or 45, you don't even know there's another view than that. I mean, we've been so programmed that expressive yeah. individualism is the way to look at the world in the, in the truly authentic way to be human. Whenever anybody says that that's, that's nonsense. I mean, that's not, not just wrong, but that's, it would be laughable if it wasn't the monopolizing view. Yeah. Right. You know? And, and as like, we, like Carter Sneed points out really well, I think, you know, um, the only reason you're, you or I are able to live on this expressive individualist model is because someone, someone else, else didn't, didn't right they actually took care of themselves right yeah. so like i i, I beg of this talk yeah. i talked today i have a one-year-old and a living in my house a little baby my baby my boy daniel and i have uh, my father my 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 dear father who's 95 years old okay and um they're very different <laughs> right mm -hmm. uh, but both of them need care in different ways right and and so in a sense um my father did not live like an expressive individualist when he raised me mm -hmm. and my responsibility to Daniel, my son and my father is to not live like a radical expressive individualist, mm -hmm. but to actually have responsibility to care, to yeah. care for them. And you have a duty, whether you accept it or not, well, it, it has matter. nothing to do with your consent or, or my little exists. real me or my right. real me. It's right. it, this duty exists and right. I can I can reject it and not do it. Right. That's where the, that's where the kind of libertarian freedom is there. I can, I, I can do whatever I want. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is where the question of what you want and what you should and what you ought and what's justice mm -hmm. and what's due to another person are all connected. And I think you said some earlier, Nick, that's super important that all these things notice are co constantly connected to one another. Right. Right. They're connected. But I, and I think the other thing on the, the question of like this, there's a, this transgenderism is also part of transhumanism. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That we're going to, in a sense, escape this body of ours yeah. by uploading ourselves to the internet. I mean, you know, the metaverse. yeah, mm -hmm. the metaverse. By implanting I mean, things in ourselves by. Yeah. And so, yeah. and, and, and so there's, it's, and then, the, but I think that the, but the transgender one is very difficult. No, by the way, not only in your resurrected body, but a hundred years from now, if your body is dug up, they're not going to say like, I thought this was this woman, this, this man thought he was a woman. It's a, you're a man. Mm -hmm. That's what you are. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, but I think, and, and again, this is like, the, there's multiple reasons for gender dysphoria and confusion. Some of it's abuse. Mm -hmm. And when we say, oh, that's just who you are. Are we acquitting the abuser? It's a very, that's a quite action of injustice. Some of it's contagion. I mean, because, you know, at this point, I think about 20% of Generation Z are LGBTQ. Well, that means you've basically been the target of a propaganda campaign. Okay. And I would also argue the failure of adults. I'm an adult, so failure of adults to actually help vulnerable, vulnerable children, uh, either because you're using them for your political tools or for your personal disordered gratification. So we've really failed we failed young people in this. This is a, this is a sign. If we young people are struggling with this, that's not a normal situation. That means we're in a social pathology. That's very harmful. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, but it does have decades of expressive individualism on in that the real you is whatever you feel inside. Mm -hmm. And I tell my children, I tell everybody myself, you're not your feelings. 
Okay. Your feelings are going to go up and down through life. Right. And, and that, but again, it's also an affirmation of the body. And I think Nick, your, your point is really important. It's, it's kind of like the dual problem we talked about earlier, right? You, you're a determined and you're radically free. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you get everything you want and none of the responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a nice, they're mutually enabling, even though they're incoherent here, you have, you're nothing but a body. Biology is all that matters. You're determined by your biology, Mm -hmm. but not really. Cause there's this really mystical, spiritual you. I mean, there's no soul. I mean, that's just, you know, belief, fantasy, belief, and you know, Adam mm-hmm. and Eve, it's all a myth and there's no soul. Okay. You're, you're just pure matter. Come on. We're scientists. Yeah. But here. your believe psychology the is the real you. Your science, but yeah. the real you is the spiritual self inside you. Like, mm-hmm. like how is that? How am I determined? Right. And mm-hmm. so I think this is why one of the reasons why philosophy of the person matters, but also I want to say mm-hmm. this, cause I think it's, maybe it's, obvious. I think it's, well, it's important. I mean, it's important to say we're a certain kind of being. We have a a nature, an essence. We're a certain kind of thing. Okay. You can use the word nature. You can use the word essence, whatever, but we're a certain Mm -hmm. kind of thing and certain kinds of things flourish in certain kinds of ways. Now we're not all the same. So human beings flourish in many, many different ways. Mm-hmm. But, but there are limits to that because we have a nature, right? And it goes back to this, what I said before, what people ultimately want is to be loved. Okay. What we're designed for is to be in communion, like Adam and Eve. All right. Now, like I'm Catholic, there are some people who are called to forsake that good for the consecrated religious life. Okay. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, that's what you're called for. You're called, you're, you're made by God to be in a loving relationship. So if we see when like, remember when the Pharisees are talking to Jesus and he says, in the beginning, it was not so right. And like Genesis, like a man leaves his uh, mother and father and cleaves to his wife and they become one. That's how we're designed. We're designed. Right. And that's biological too. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's profound. Okay. But because we're not simply just biological beings, it's a deep, rich, emotional bond. And then out of that, we create a family with children. And each of us is called to fatherhood and motherhood, right? Each man here is called to fatherhood. Each woman here is called to motherhood. It might get realized in different ways. Sometimes people can't have children. There's a complexities. Okay. But that's what we're called for too. And that's where we're going to flourish. And we're going to flourish then in a family and in society, in, in relationships. And Expressive individualism looks like it's going to give you everything you want and it works for the lucky and the powerful and the wealthy who often don't even live that way anyway. Uh Okay. But it hurts the poor. It really hurts children and it hurts women. It hurts the confused and the disordered. It hurts the vulnerable and Uh the confused. There are many Uh boys like 16, 17 years old, they're confused. Like, let's be honest, right? Mm-hmm. You're like 16, 17 years old, like your sexuality for a boy. I mean, like, it's like omnidirected. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's like, like, okay. Like you see the light, the lamp, the lake, it doesn't matter. I mean, you're not, you're, you're not, you don't have sexual attraction to a lake. You're just having sexual, you know, yeah. up, this is like, you know, it just goes up and down. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's real. And so, you know, a boy, at 16 or 17, 15, 16, 17, may like see another boy who's like 18 years old. He's powerful, he's handsome, he's cool. And there's attraction, okay? It's attraction. 
right? And there's an imitation going on, right? There's mimetic imitation desire. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. oh, that guy's awesome. Okay. In a normal, healthy situation. And then by the way, just as there may be like a, a sexual urge or movement, uh, you know, the biologically that happens when you look at the, at the shades, it might also like happen as you look at this, this, this part and you're like, Oh my goodness. Like, and then normal, it's like, Oh, that's no big deal. That's no big deal. Okay. Well, that attraction is not sexual. Like 99.99% of the time. Okay. We'll just say, okay, we'll give a little, uh, it's just normal. But in a, in a world where it's you, you've had some thought you must be homosexual or you must have these homosexual tendencies or et cetera. What we do is we take normal people or people who are vulnerable and we use them as political tools and we deprive them of actually just having a really good friend that they admire. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is why I like the movie Spider-Man, right? This is why I really thought the last Spider-Man was good. I know there's, you know, debate among the room uh, here about yeah. this, but uh, you guys are wrong. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. But, but um, no, I mean, this is why I like the, the Spider-Man because Peter and Ned are great friends and they love each other, but it's not sexual. Mm-hmm. They'll make sacrifices for them. They care to love is to seek the good of the other. Right. And um, what's her name? MJ. Peter has a, like he lo- he's romantically, it lo- I loves MJ and it's, it's not, it's not like it's romantic, but it's pure. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what people want. And then what does Peter have to do? He has to sacrifice the deepest existential desires of every man for a beloved woman and a great friend. And he has to sacrifice himself so that they might live. Mm-hmm. That's epic. And that's manly. And, yeah. <laughs> and the, I just want to say at, at the end that w- we need to have courage to tell the truth and to help young vulnerable people walk through the normal vicissitudes of life. Young girls are confused about their bodies. You know, they're like, I'm uncomfortable with my body. Like, of course you're 16, right? That's normal. And instead what we do is like, Ooh, maybe there's this thing. And that's a disorder on the fact on the adult. That's a Mm -hmm. disorder that actually that perpetuates coming from our anxiety injustice. Like adults are so anxious about kids that we want an answer. And that's, that seems like one. And right. just but we're perpetuating injustice. And, uh, and again, when abuse is involved, which it often is, we then acquit the abuser because why are you in this situation? We would never say to someone who struggles with anorexia because they're going through anxiety or abuse. That's who you are. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I would say is this identity thing is also goes back to your point, Nick, right? Like somehow the secret you inside is your identity, right? Well, think about what we've done. We have, we're actually, we're actually, and it's right. It's being written, expressive individuals being written into law. Okay. And this is going yeah, to, this harm, covers, covers this a good bit. His book. Yeah. This is going to harm the weak and the children and the poor and women, et cetera. Most. And I, it's, it's, I'll, I'll finish quickly, but if you think about it, we've, we're creating a new ontology of the person. So what we've done is in the past, there's this idea like well, in the past, I mean, there's this idea, especially in the Christian tradition that we have an essence, we have a nature or a kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we exist. Each of us is an instantiation of that nature. So like we're a human being and then now we exist. Okay. And so I share that nature. Well, there's the kind of existential move, people like Sartre and others, have this idea, oh, for, there's just existence and you have no nature. And then you just make yourself whoever you want to be. Well, the problem is that doesn't really ground being. If you're just feeling what you're feeling, okay, you can do your thing. I'll do my thing. But that doesn't give us rights. 
Okay. So what's happened is that we've kind of inverted the kind of classical Christian understanding. And now you start with existence and then you choose who you want to be with your inner psychological self and, and your sexual, your sexual predilection. Then that determines who you are and the plastic hardens and that's who you are. Okay. But one, that's, and and that's supposed to be stable. Oh, but not unless you decide to choose. Right. Right. So it's supposed to, but it's who you are unless you choose to change. Right. So now the danger of course, right now is if we're identifying people by their sexual predilection right now, okay, it's being celebrated. What happens? Not celebrated. Do those people lose their personhood? Because unborn babies don't have personhood because it's not popular to like unborn babies. I mean, you think powers change, things go wrong. Like this is a dangerous spot for people who are vulnerable. Okay. So it's, it's very dangerous. But second, it's being written in the law that others must acknowledge and res- say, agree that that's their, that's who they are. No, I don't mean you should respect them as a human being because they're made in the image of God. I mean, you must affirm that that person is a woman. Like I will not do that because it's unjust to do that. It's dishonest to do that. Okay. But here's the last thing I want to say. We don't do that with anorexic people. Why do we, why do we say someone is a homosexual? No, they are a person who struggles with homosexual tendencies. You don't call Bill Clinton a promiscuous. Okay. And why does our sexual um, moment at a certain time become who we are? This is deeply reductive and it's actually part of the sexual revolution and a, and a, and a propaganda campaign. And, and my friend, Carrie Grass, has written some wonderful things, especially in the, her book, The Anti-Mary, which looks at a lot of this in the, in, the, in the feminism. So, but the point is, this actually is not, it sounds like I am a hater or I'm mean, okay? But what I'm actually saying is we are perpetuating injustice upon, among, on people and it's going to be women, children, the vulnerable and the weak who suffer the most for political gains that may be fashionable right now. And I think it's very dangerous. And it's, and I think as Christians, we have to stand up in love and treat people who are struggling with these sexual problems with love, with kindness, with respect and with charity. But charity means we must tell them the truth and we must not buy into a bad anthropology that ultimately undermines their human dignity and doesn't protect it. Absolutely. Well, we'll wrap this first podcast up because I think we're out of time, but, um, yeah, I mean, in the next podcast, we're going to be talking about exactly how we can speak truth in terms of government and politics and that kind of thing. So we will be back in like a week. I know it'll be the same format and everything like that, but next week we'll release that one. So thanks for doing this one. And then we'll be, we'll be back next week with the next one. So make sure to tune in. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.